Hey guys, it's Bill with a quick housekeeping note before this week's episode, which is all about President Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. We record the show on Thursday, which means we had already recorded the episode by Friday when news broke that special counsel Robert Mueller had brought new obstruction of justice charges against Manafort. The new charges also included allegations against a close Manafort associate who investigators think may have ties to Russian intelligence. We're going to be covering it all week here at Law360, so keep an eye out for our coverage, and we'll be talking about it on next week's show. Without further ado, this week's episode. Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Every time you read the news, there's a news story about special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Because this week had so much going on in the case, we're going to spend the whole show talking about it. One of the key aspects of the probe centers around a lobbying law few people know much about. It's a statute Paul Manafort has been charged with violating, and now a lot of Washington is worried. A little later in the show, we'll be joined by senior reporter Michael McInerney to explain everything you need to know about that law. But first, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. So we're going to get really into Mueller stuff today, guys. Excited for it. We are. But before that, let's do a quick update. We've talked about the the one of the biggest cases of the Supreme Court term, yeah. Masterpiece Cake Shop. The ruling came down this week. Huge and ruling. LGBTQ discrimination laws versus freedom of expression in religion. Only one can, can emerge from the Thunderdome. What do we have, Bill? We've got a very narrow procedural ruling that left no one happy. Oh. Uh, I mean, <laughs> but like, we, we always joke around about how the Supreme Court likes to take these narrow rulings exactly. and they often leave us hanging. I thought of that. Well, and they really and I, did I did see time. a tweet about that where it was like, if if this was your case and, and they were ruling against you, you wouldn't want them to go out of their way to find the most expansive way to rule against you. Like, yes. That's a fair point. But anyway, so um, the, the ruling basically said that because as you mentioned, the reason people were watching this was because it was this interesting argument of whether or not the free speech aspect of the First Amendment yeah. gives someone the right in the context of, a, of an expressive product, like maybe a cake, maybe other things that you have to – that have artistic expression involved, mm -hmm. whether or not those things give you a free speech right to not comply with anti-discrimination law. Right. Right. Uh, none of that stuff was touched on in the ruling. They basically said on procedural grounds, the – Civil Rights Commission in Colorado, yeah. which was the, the the body who ruled against the Baker in the case, that they had exhibited bias uh, yeah. against religious There was people. an animus towards Correct. Yeah, religion. But the yeah. key, I think, for a lot of people was that they issued that ruling, but, but Kennedy came out and said, like, however this is done in the future, when we do answer these big questions, they have to be done with respect to these public accommodation laws and everything else. So it, it did seem like it was sort of a, almost like a like a pyrrhic victory for the baker that it, yeah. it, it yeah. sort of affirmed that that you know these rules are important and the fundamental value of them, but mm -hmm. sided with him in terms of what the commission actually did. Yeah, so I mean everybody's just kind of looking for a better vehicle now, I guess, I guess for, yeah. for what comes next. But all right, so let's get to Mueller. Yes, um, you know I'm reminded of uh, those great philosophers from the early aughts, Incubus, who told us, <laughs> "Pardon me, while I burst into flames." Oh, I love that you made this reference. This is uh, this is instructive for what we're talking about today because on Monday, President Donald Trump basically said he can pardon himself. And legal Twitter burst into flames. It did indeed. Basically, yeah. So in case you missed it, the president took to his Twitter account on Monday and basically said in no uncertain terms he believed he has the power to pardon himself. 
uh, in the event that Robert Mueller decides to indict him. Uh, and this was kind of wild to yeah. hear. Uh, and I think it's really good to just read uh, read from the tweet itself, as we've done so many times on the show. Uh, as has been stated by numerous legal scholars, I have the absolute right to pardon myself. Pardon in all caps, by sure, the way. Sure, right. But why would I do that when I have done nothing wrong? In the meantime, the never-ending witch hunt led by 13 very angry and conflicted Democrats and others continues to the midterms. Uh, so there you go. Uh, okay, so That sort do, of laid down a gauntlet there. Do we have a sense of, like, th this sounds like something that there should be maybe an answer for? Like, it, yeah. like is, is there? I mean, is there a sense of where the law is on this? Well, it's curious that he, he began that message by saying, numerous legal scholars agree with me. Um, but, uh, of course, cited no specific right. uh, legal uh, minds to, to go along with that. But that doesn't mean that people don't think that way. It's important to note, um, to your point about a, a specific answer, basically one does not exist. Yeah. And anything we talk about here or anything you read elsewhere is entirely speculative because it's never been considered by a federal or state judge or any quasi-judicial body at all. So... I mean, because we've never gotten to a point where the president has, like, seriously considered uh, contemplating himself. About the most authoritative opinion we have on it is from 1974. This mm -hmm. is in the, the, the right in the midst of the Watergate investigation. Sure. So that would have been the closest situation where a president exactly. maybe was considering this. And uh, a DOJ attorney named Mary Lawton penned uh, uh, an informal just opinion about on this question. And she basically said um, when considering the question of whether or not a president can pardon himself, uh, he, she said, uh, under the fundamental rule that no one may be a judge in his own case, it would seem that the question should be answered in the negative. Um, so there's that, and it should be noted Nixon resigned like days later. Right. Um, but even that is hardly authoritative. It's one opinion from one government attorney 40 years ago. Right. So it, it really is a free-for-all in this regard. Okay, so we're Law 360, so obviously we had a reporter look into this mm -hmm. and write a feature about what legal scholars were telling him. It was Brandon Lowry. Brandon Lowry wrote, wrote a good one, yeah. So what can you run down like what Brandon uncovered there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's entirely... The, the, the crux of Brandon's article, and it popped up in a lot of coverage, is basically like it goes to how you interpret silence in the Constitution because the Constitution does not it does not answer the question directly. It doesn't say the president, yes, he can pardon himself, mm -hmm. or no, he can't do that. Right. So it's in the negative space of the Constitution. Uh, on either side, uh, the most compelling argument um, for Trump being unable to pardon himself lies in Article 2. It gets a little wonky here, but stay with me. Article 2 basically says that the president has to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple directive there. Kind of gets to what the Mary Lawton opinion says. And if the idea is, if you are sort of inserting a considerable influence in charges brought against yourself, that cannot possibly be done in good faith. Right. Right? right? You know, so I mean, like, like, like she said, acting as your own judge. Um, the sort of school of thought that says that Trump actually can pardon himself usually begins with what the Constitution says about the presidential pardoning process itself. And I know that's super broad. Yeah, I mean, basically, it just the, the Constitution gives the president the power to pardon um, offenses against the United States. That's what it is. Uh, there's there is one limitation to that, and it's spelled out, and it basically says the president can't pardon in a in cases of impeachment. So you see, there the framers like drew a specific line right to, uh, on a limit to the president to the president's pardon power, which is like, okay, if they want to impeach me, I can't pardon myself away from that. Right. And you can see sort of where the line of thinking proceeds from there, because it's like, 
there's one route to get, uh, you know, to oust a president, basically, yeah. and it is through impeachment. It's not through criminal charges or civil charges or whatever else. There were specific. There was a specific limit drawn. It doesn't say like such as cases of impeachment. It just sure. says in cases of impeachment, and that's that would be sort of because like, that was like the relief valve that's for the these bright kind of lines, yeah. right? So that those are basically where the two sides are coming from. Again. You know where it will come out. You know it's anyone's guess. But. It's it's interesting that you know that that we get into the the concept of impeachment because it's another aspect of the Constitution that for so long and and you know we've seen impeachments, we've seen Clinton, and, yeah, but that it lives in this sort of zone of the Constitution where it's hypothetical, it's academic, yeah. the way that it works, and to now have them out there in the real world is is a bit jarring. Yeah, we were talking about that before we started recording. It's it's. To, to have it exist entirely hypothetically um, is very interesting. About the closest we got, as we said, was Nixon. Clinton, I, uh, in 98, actually said, I, I won't be pardoning myself. This yeah. is like ahead of the, uh, like, or in the midst of the star investigation. Didn't say that he didn't have the power to. He just said he wouldn't be doing it. So that's interesting. But you see this running through a lot of the commentary about this whole saga, where it's like even people who defend Trump's like or, or or claim that Trump has the right to pardon himself. Mm-hmm. There's almost always some kind of caveat where it's like he may well have the authority to do that, but it is pretty crazy that we're even talking about yeah. whether he can. Right. Um, you know, legal academia kind of exists to debate unanswerable questions and kind of, you know, scratch your beard and think about, you know, what's what's going on here. But uh it looks it's at least possible that it's going to become like a concrete like substantive question in the next year or so, and if it if it if it gains legal traction, I mean, since it's never been contemplated by anybody before, it's very likely it's going to fall to the Supreme Court in that regard. So, as much as I like, because of the nerdy part of myself, to talk about these big academic sweeping things like this, mm-hmm. president president can or cannot pardon himself. Right. Let's take it to a little more concrete action in our next segment, talking sure. more about Mueller. Yeah. So the investigation continues to heat up. Um, this week, Mueller accused President Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, of attempting to tamper with potential witnesses <laughs> ahead of his trial over, if you remember, it was alleged financial and lobbying. Which, right. which we're going to get into later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so what? Giant constitutional <laughs> subjects to like nuts and bolts criminal law. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think the jury is in on the question of witness tampering <laughs> and this question of what exactly he did. So what do they say? Yeah. Manafort, so, what, what's up here? So prosecutors say that he attempted to contact two potential witnesses to influence their testimony. Okay. So classic stuff here. Right. Um, They've all been there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're alleging that he used encrypted messages on his iPhone, some through WhatsApp. A lot of people have heard of that one. Nice. And also got the help of an unnamed um, person to be sort of an intermediary. He to try slid to into the DMs of, uh, <laughs> of witnesses. Uh, of witnesses. And just to and sort you of, do that at your own peril. Any any lawyer will tell you that, right? Yeah. And just to sort of explain how this all came about, Mueller got this information because two these two individuals that he tried to contact came forward and they turned over the messages to prosecutors, Mm -hmm. explained what had happened. And then there's some speculation that maybe some of this was also um, uploaded to the cloud and that Mueller had gotten Uh, some of it that way too. The the vicious cloud. (laughs) Right. It gets you. It felled Manafort like it felled so many men of his generation. (laughs) So what was he trying to do by reaching out to them? I mean, tampering is a Big broad subject. Yeah, so sure. what was he? What, what did what did Manafort want to get out of this? Yeah. So to explain that, I'd like to do a quick reset of uh-huh. what he's accused of. So some of the key allegations against Manafort are that he secretly retained this group of former European officials to act as lobbyists in the U.S. Yeah. And they were supposed to be lobbying on behalf of the Ukraine. Yeah. So that was the scandal at the heart of this. And 
he's alleged to have here reached out to members of this public relations firm that could get word to those Europeans who are called the Habsburg Group. Not to be confused <laughs> with the, the long-standing royal family of yeah, the right. Austrian Empire. This is just another Different reason. Different Habsburg. Yeah, right. This is a, this is Common a, name. It's just yet another reason never to email PR people, but keep going. Sure. <laughs> said like a true reporter. I know. Um, so the prosecutor said Manafort was trying to tell those Habsburg Group people through these intermediaries that they were, uh, that if they were contacted contacted by anybody, that they should lie and say their lobbying work was all in Europe. None of it was in the U.S. Oh, man. That's what he wanted to say. That rules. I mean, just leaving, just leaving no bright lines. Pretty straightforward. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like everything with this investigation, it's endlessly fascinating and a little weird. Yeah. So um, if you remember, Manafort was indicted on a bunch of these charges back in the fall. And prosecutors say he started doing this reaching out to witnesses just days after his associate, Richard Gates, pleaded guilty. That was in February. But like, right. do you think you're not going to get caught? Ca- well, going, sorry. I mean, don't, uh, don't I mean, try I'm, and crawl into Paul Manafort's head. <laughs> you're not, not going to like what you find there. I I'm, don't know. I'm just given the timeline because I think prosecutors are making the connection here that he was feeling more pressure after that Gates yeah. guilty plea. Makes yeah. sense. So, you know, just to get a little more into what exactly happened in those messages, a lot of them were kind of funny if you read them just on the face of them. Um, he, yeah. One witness he reached out to, and he started out with, "This is Paul." Great. And then um, God, I just want Paul. <laughs> yeah. Not even using uh, aliases. I just <laughs> wanted to give you a quote heads up about Habsburg. So yeah, just real casual. You're casual being invaded by the Holy there. Roman Empire. I was gonna say I'm gonna defer to the history major over there. I don't know. He also did some <laughs> yeah. things like. Um, he sent one of these potential witnesses a link to a business insider story about the claims that he was uh, that Manafort was paid to lobby for the Ukraine. I'm not savvy. I, well, I mean, I'm not thrilled about he it. He didn't say it. He just sent a link L- linking to the to the competition. I mean, I don't and know. then he had a third Walter party who also <laughs> reached out and and said things like, "P wants to give you a quick summary P. that." <laughs> He says to everybody, which is true, that our friends never lobbied in the U.S. So there's just a lot of, you know, you right. get the gist of it there. <laughs> yeah. So what happens now with, with I mean, this? I assume this isn't great for Manafort. It's not great for him, no. Um, so he was arraigned in October, and that's when he was granted this, um, what they call, high-intensity supervised release. Yes. The terms of that, he's home confinement, he had to put up a $10 million bond, and he can't commit crimes. I mean, that's part of the whole deal. <laughs> Important. I'm glad we got that on the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. From, from now on, you're not allowed to commit crimes. <laughs> no more crimes. No more texting people about well, doing crimes. Right. So now prosecutors have had to go into court and say, you know what? <laughs> Witness tampering is a crime. Yeah. And they're requesting to revoke or revise the terms of this pretrial release. So uh, we record on Thursday. Tomorrow, Manafort um, has a deadline to respond to these allegations. Okay. And then there's going to be a hearing on the motion to revoke or revise on June 15th. Okay. So that's coming up really yeah. quick. Cool. Special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of Russia's interference in the 2016 election has been grabbing headlines for more than a year. The former FBI director has been building a case against Trump administration confidants and possibly the president himself. But for all of its political fireworks, a major portion of the Mueller probe is centered largely on an obscure law that's supposed to regulate the activities of people lobbying on behalf of foreign governments. The law has already ensnared former Trump campaign director Paul Manafort, and now it's keeping many of Washington's power brokers up at night. 
Joining us on the phone from D.C. to talk through it all is Law360 senior reporter Mike McInerney. Welcome, Mike. Hi, glad to be here. So, Mike, the Mueller probe's been going on for a while, and I think a lot of us just have lost track of where we are. Can you give us a refresher on what got Paul Manafort into hot water with the special counsel's office? Well, one aspect of the criminal troubles facing Paul Manafort centers on the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which is a very little enforced law originally from 1938. It was originally meant to counter Nazi propaganda. But over the years, it's morphed and sort of generally fallen to the background of Washington, D.C., especially in the mid-1990s when they let most lobbyists off for the obligation to register under the law. But it's really come to light in the last few years. And the spark that has uh, put a big spotlight on this has been the indictment of Paul Manafort and uh, his longtime aide, Rick Gates. And what is uh, Manafort alleged to have done in violation of this law, Mike? So, allegedly, Manafort and Gates orchestrated this years-long lobbying campaign on behalf of uh, the Party of Regions and former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, who's the head of the Party of Regions, in the U.S. Okay. And I know that, like, after, I mean, at a lot of points in this investigation, Manafort's lawyer has, like, really kind of railed against the, the use of the law in this way. And you got to it a little bit when, when you when you got us into the segment here. But what exactly, what is sort of the, 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 the what was Farah like before, before everybody heard of it in this context? Like you say, it was, like, lying basically dormant, right? Yeah. So since the mid-1960s, which is the last time there were substantial alterations to this law, there have been about half a dozen prosecutions. Oh, okay. And... Then, on top of that, in the mid-1990s, they exempted most traditional lobbying shops from having to disclose under this law. So the number of disclosures fell off by half. There's been barely any prosecutions on it. Very few people know about or really pay attention to this law. But then all of a sudden, you've got the former campaign chairman for a presidential candidate is indicted for violations of the law, which really put it front and center. And there has been a substantial uptick in registrations, in uh, people coming forward and saying they have these relationships with foreign companies or foreign governments. Sometimes these relationships date years back, and they're just coming forward now and saying, oh, you know, we're we're just disclosing this now. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like things have really shifted a lot in how the D.C. power brokers are sort of looking at this law. They seem a little worried. So in those... um, registrations to kind of catch themselves up. What kind of interesting things have you seen in there? I know you were digging through a lot of them. Yeah, so the registrations vary anywhere from big law lobbying firms that also have substantial lobbying practices to, you know, one-person PR shops that have a subcontracting relationship with an embassy. And there's been a whole range of relationships that have been disclosed, varying from, you know, the Mexican Trade Authority to... um, the Qatari government, and pretty much everybody in between. And some of these relationships that have been now retroactively disclosed in the last few months go as far back as 2014. And Mike, it's not always something that people like disclosing, right? You sort of, you sort of painted it in your story as, as something of a scarlet letter when, when, you know, the, the, when these relationships come out. It's not always something that people want out there. No, no, certainly not. Because for one thing, uh, for a small, say, nonprofit it can be really a substantial burden to have to comply with this law, to open up your books, to, you know, 
disclose any communications that you might have advocating for, say, policy changes. And also, there's the added uh, potential criminal liability if you get anything wrong. So there are a lot of people who are really worried about this. And also, there's um, you know some behind-the-scenes lobbying campaigns, particularly on behalf of a number of Middle Eastern countries that have had to come out into the light because of these uh, FARA disclosures. And one lobbyist who spoke to my colleague, Jimmy Hoover, mentioned that it's kind of a, a competitive advantage for yeah. people who have managed to avoid disclosure, uh, as opposed to somebody who's lobbying on the other half of an issue that has to disclose. And yeah, we didn't even mention, by the way, Mike and Jimmy did like a, a bunch of deep dives on like what's going on with FARA in the wake of the Manafort stuff. Everybody should go read it. Um, one of the most interesting components of that reporting, Mike, and I remember because this kind of, I'm the trade guy, and it kind of veers into my lane with you know, foreign advocacy and stuff like that. And I remember when Manafort first got popped, I hopped on the phone with, you know, some pretty well-respected trade lawyers with the vision of writing a story that kind of, that you and Jimmy eventually did much better. And these are, these are some of the best trade lawyers in the entire country. And I asked them about this law and they had no idea what I was even talking about. (laughs) They were like, oh yeah, uh, it's, I know you have to register as a foreign, uh, as a lobbyist of a foreign government. But other than that, I don't know. Um, so can we talk like about the big law aspect of this? You kind of got to it a little bit. There's like a blurred line between like if you're doing legal representation or lobbying or some kind of advocacy. How is this manifested for, for, for lawyers in D.C.? Well, for lawyers in D.C., there is uh, a couple of lanes that this can go down, which is part of the problem that some people have with the law, that it ends up being very vague. Yeah. That there are exemptions for traditional legal work. So if you're representing a client in a court case or in an administrative case, things like that are exempted. But lobbying, public advocacy, things like that are not. But then there's also an exemption for firms that register under the Lobbying Disclosure Act, which is a separate law for normal, straightforward um, talking to a member of Congress's office about a particular bill. So there's been a number of firms that we talked to that said that they were registering out of an abundance of caution because there has been an uptick in enforcement. There has been an uptick from the DOJ of going out and saying, you should register under this law. Did the uptick coincide with the Manafort thing? I mean, is that sort of like, I mean, is that sort of what what set us in motion here? Well, there was a, a few things here. There was the Manafort issue, and then there was also a 2016 DOJ Inspector General report that highlighted a lot of the problems with this law, including the fact that there has been almost no enforcement. And the the most prominent evidence of the uptick in enforcement since then has been the Manafort indictment, and it's probably the biggest case since then, but there have been a handful of uh, firms that have registered and said that they were registering because they were contacted by the DOJ particularly um, the company that's associated with broadcasting Radio Sputnik in the U.S. and um, uh, RT America said that they were registering in the wake of being contacted by the DOJ. Mike, your story got into the, you know, the story of a couple of different big law firms. Could you sort of, the, of their experience now sort of coming to terms with this, could you, could you walk us through one of those, one of those anecdotes? Yeah, so the most uh, prominent might be uh, Skadden Arps, uh, which has managed to get itself entangled in the Manafort case. Yeah, Actually, I think we've talked first... about that before, right? Yeah, yeah. that's been yeah. on the show give before. It, give, give us a refresher, though. I remember somebody, uh, one of their lawyers, didn't uh, fare so well under Farah. 
<laughs> well, actually, it wasn't Farr specifically so much as he admitted to lying in, to investigators about his work on behalf oh, of the foreign right. government. Yes, yeah. um, so a former associate at Skadden, Alex Vanderswan, pled guilty and actually has since gone to jail and been deported because he was a British citizen. And um, for allegedly lying to investigators about a report that was done on behalf of the Ukrainian government and was allegedly used in the Manafort and Gates lobbying campaign. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's also been a resignation of a high-profile uh, partner at the firm, Gregory Craig, um, who left the firm earlier this year. And um, he was involved in writing that report that got Alex Vanderswan in trouble. Now, Skadden has uh, maintained that Craig and the firm's work did not involve uh, – Foreign Agent Registration Act work, and they were working on behalf of the Ukrainian government. Um, however, Manafort and Gates are both accused of having violated the Foreign Agent Registration Act. So th it, there's a, a bit of a web there, and we might find out more when Manafort goes on trial later this year. So, Mike, you've painted for us this picture that you know, Faro was little used before. Now we had Manafort and, and the Scadden troubles and some other things that have made it take a place of prominence. People are really starting to um, get on board with registering and taking it more seriously. With that sort of backdrop of how it's shifted, what can we expect going forward in the coming months? Well, in the next few months, we're likely to see at least a little bit more about FARA enforcement as it relates to the Manafort trial. He's currently scheduled to go on trial later this year. Mm -hmm. We're also likely to see a whole lot more registrations come out in the next few months. They've already registered at a rate higher than in the last two decades. Yeah. However, I don't know necessarily that there's going to be any congressional action to reform the law because just about everybody who has backed uh, reform efforts has come to the table with their own ideas about how to do it. Right now, there's six or seven different proposals that are floating around. And Congress doesn't necessarily get a whole lot done unless there's a concerted effort to get something done. And right now, everybody who nominally backs reform has not been able to get to an agreement on what to do. So business as usual there, right, Mike? <laughs> we got a million ideas to reform the law. <laughs> yeah, Mike. And, and nothing has happened yet. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like this isn't the last we're going to hear about any of this. So thanks a lot for being on the show to give us all an education so we're up to speed. Absolutely. Glad to be on. That'll wrap up the show for this week. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. I have to go because I've been indicted by Robert Mueller. So I mean, you better I think it's go take go. care of it. The yeah. good news is you're about to get pardoned. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of other people to thank for today's show as well. Our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guest, Michael McInerney. And contributing reporters this week, Jimmy Hoover, Brandon Lowry, Chuck Stanley, and Dave Simpson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we talked about today, especially our long report on Farah, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks and join us again next week.